This podcast is supported by Siemens, your partner for industrial-grade AI. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of our Industrial AI Podcast. My name is Robert Weber, and our greeting this morning goes to our AI in the Alps participants. Welcome to Zook. We are looking forward to the two days with you. Hello, Peter. Good morning, Robert, and good morning, good afternoon, good whatever you and wherever you are. Including, as you said, to our participants of the AI in the Alps, which is, as we are broadcasting on Thursday, will start joining or have already joined us today. Yeah, absolutely. Peter, let's start the, the news section because the first episode of Women in AI in Robotics is already waiting in the main section. Our guest is Professor Dr. Gitta Kutniak from LMU Munich. And Munich is a good keyword because the Technical University of Munich is the number one university in Europe with the most AI founders according to a study by Early Bird Venture Capital. So congratulations to Munich. From what? On a European level? Or? On a European level, okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. And what I found very interesting, French AI startups are amongst the best funded in the European Union. Best funded, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, best funded. I was surprised when it comes to France, but but recently there was an announcement about Mistral AI and they raised over 100 million euros. Have you ever heard about this? It's a generative AI company. No, I haven't. No, Mistral, yeah, sounds like the, the wind coming from whatever direction over the French Riviera coast. No, I've no, I've no idea. why. Did they say why that is? I mean, are French financial backers willing to put more or more easily money into startups than, for example, German or other countries? I'm not sure about that. I will put the whole uh, link to the show notes. But it's good to hear because what I hear on the radio this morning is there is this always this in Europe, of course, there's always this German-French cooperation, which is, you know, it's good for the stability, let's say, of Europe. Uh, the smaller uh, countries, not smaller in size, a couple of times I considered that actually we have, like France or Spain, countries that are a lot bigger than Germany, but not as many inhabitants. But then at the same time, what we hear all the time on the radio about France, that, you know, people go in the streets and there is a lot of things happening and the prime minister uh, not uh, not visiting us. It's not the prime minister, it's the president. Yeah, it's always depending on what country we are, what we call them. But there yeah. you go. And visiting because of what's happening there. So very nice to hear here with us some, some nice, very good, positive news about our French uh, listeners and French people putting uh, resources into artificial intelligence startups. Yeah, I think the French government invests a lot in AI startups. There was some programs, I remember, that they invest a lot of money in that. But, you know, Technical University of Munich is number one. And special thanks to Dr. Till Klein from Applied AI for sharing this information. Uh, the link is in the show notes. Good. You want to go on? I can stay with university while around the world, loads of discussions, I think not only where we are based in Germany, but elsewhere, take place about pupils using large language models for doing their homework, right? You see that all everywhere around. Harvard University, so a couple of years later, then, they encourage students to use a bot as their 
24-7 learning assistant for, they call the introduction to computer science course, for helping them to debug code, give feedback on their designs, answer individual questions about error messages and unfamiliar lines of code. Now, the professor of this CS50, and I saw a picture with the article, and I had been, been seeing actually this huge room because of another course that I had been following, there is this philosopher which is actually supporting or giving information to our chancellor. But that's another topic. And they hope that through AI, they can eventually approximate a one-to-one teacher-to-student ratio, right, for every student. Now, of course, the discussion then is, what does this mean? Well, they say they will make very sure that they will always tell students to always think critically, you know, when taking information, you know, independent if it is from humans or from software. And what they say is that they believe is that the tools will only get better through feedback from the students and from the teachers. So the teachers will be very much part of the process. I think there was this news that students are allowed to use ChatGPT also in Hamburg, in German city in the north, using ChatGPT at the examination. So it's very interesting. What what is it? I mean, we've seen maybe I've seen these uh, these photographs, real photographs, you know, not mid-journey pictures. And it's as we discussed this, you know, in in ten or twenty years, people, young people, will have no clue that we had cameras at some point. And what what was a camera for? <laughs> Were you taking, were you actually snapshotting what is happening in real world? This is changing and changing all the time. And there was this time when the mathematics um, uh, teachers, right, they would go on the street because, and that was, when is that, 30, 40 years ago when we, when the, with the introduction of the calculators, and they said, oh, we're going to lose our jobs and you cannot allow students and pupils to use calculators It's the most normal thing to do. And so we go step by step. Now, I must say that maybe as part of our listeners, it's going to be the same. I, I believe, I assume that maybe there's going to be a higher percentage of you know people because of our listeners, uh, you and, and, and you, Robert, and I, and, and we deal with and we can maybe more easily jump in and maybe uh, understand If you talk to the people in the street, you know, the people, my friends, people wherever I meet them that have nothing to do with our technology, for them, it's even more difficult to say because, of course, the people will not be thinking anymore. You know, they do not learn to read, but they do not learn to write. Handwriting will be gone, which is gone, I believe, in Finland since five or ten years already because they, they concentrate learning on the notebook, on the keyboard. So uh, that's what this is about. You know, that's what this news is about it's not specific industrial ai but knowing that this is happening in our world you know we in the in the bigger industrial ai space i think just need to be aware of it and be prepared for it i come back to industrial ai with my second use because i was at the automatica trade fair and by now you can say that robots are commodity and ai and software dominate the industry now some robot builders will probably curse me but ai was the focus for many exhibitors 
exhibitors. So vision was the topic, but also generative AI. And um, there's a German, small German startup. It's not a startup. It's, it's more a, really a company. It's called Fruitcore. And the engineers have integrated an LLM into its operating system. And I already set an interview with this guy. Yeah, hadn't we seen that? I mean, again, of course, Google, but many other ones, of course, around the world, I'm sure, not only Google, <laughs> had been playing with these large language models, right? Sure, because if they, if we, if we then can talk to them and they have a better understanding, and of course, we're going to be talking about language, large language models, in the next five to ten minutes as well there's there's no, no news update in the next couple of years i'm afraid without him so that's great but that's then a general i mean that's where i had the chart you know when we were still doing charge and powerpoint which is what we will not be doing coming thursday with ai in the alps but there is this chart and and that's like 10 20 years ago showing that you know the the, the the relative value add to a final product, you know, which 50 years ago was 100% hardware. Then we were adding ele electricity, let's say, components. And then at some point we were adding software. You mean electronic components, not electricity, right? Yeah, they just say yeah. electricity, electronic, yeah, sure. And then uh, with software, just and more important between the hardware and software and the hardware complete, not completely, of course not. And those of you listeners, you know, being as part of the engineering, as part of the hardware, of course, there's loads of physics and developments and uh, additive manufacturing all these things going on it's not just only about but i would i think it's fair to say that the share of the value add you know software is you know growing and growing and growing yeah i think the biggest issue at the show was making it easier to use the robot and for me the question is can llms help the people to use the robot easier that's the big question i think at the end I would hope so. I would expect so. You know, we know at what level we are. And I'll talk again a bit later also. We know we're going to ask ChatGPT, LLMs, let's say at a more general level. We're asking. We sometimes still get very weird answers. But very specifically, if we're going to contain them in addition with the capabilities of our environment, of the robotic environment, you know, so we're not going to necessarily ask uh, the robot, whatever, what do I see here? You know, what is the name of the, the tree that I see there in the front? That's a general thing I do want, I am interested in, but, you know, I, I shouldn't expect that's not the job of the robot. So I think if we're going to train the general, the base foundation, large language models with the specifics of the industrial robotic environments, most certainly am I convinced that they should be capable. But you've been there, so I assume that you've been seeing examples of it, or? Yeah, sure. Many people were very curious about Intrinsic. We already talked a little bit about Intrinsic, the Alphabet company. And um, we have talked about synthet about synthetic data before. And I have one quote because I spoke with Thorsten Kröger, the CTO, and Rainer Bischoff. He's the general manager for the German market. So I will put the quote now and you can listen to what is their philosophy on AI and robots. Good. Looking forward to it. I haven't heard it yet. I'll, I'll listen to it myself as well. <laughs> To make robots really more accessible, I think it's it's fundamental, like, like Thorsten already said before, robots have to become more flexible. And flexibility is achieved by using sensors. And our robot controller can use sensor information 
in real time, vision information, force torque sensor information, and then react to that. So the robot is much more easily able to have, let's say, smart functionality in terms of smart pick and place mm -hmm. or smart bin picking solutions. You can use perception skills that we offer, but that will also be offered then by, by a large community. You can use collision-free path planning skills, mm -hmm. um, and, and you can use, of course, grasping skills. So and this is something that you can easily plug together in a, in a flow chart. And today it's only us, but in the future, many, um, many developers will be able to provide these kind of skills mm -hmm. or assets in a, in a more broader term. And you, you, you provide synthetic data, right? From the simulation and you can work with this synthetic data in a real world application. You can, you can generate this data. I mean, usually you, you start with the cat data of your, yep. of your work cell and of yep. your robots. But there's also, of course, a way to use point cloud data to adapt it to the real world. If I can add a little bit of color to this, uh, to, yeah. to give some maybe some concrete concrete examples yeah. where we believe this is um, adding value today. Already. Yeah. AI and specifically machine learning is a core part of of the offering, as as you can as you can imagine, also as you have heard in the keynote. And at a very high level, let's maybe make a distinction between perception or visual perception in particular. Mm -hmm. We use cameras in industrial settings mm -hmm. and then also actuation when it comes to be it to motion planning or manipulation planning mm -hmm. and maybe controller parameter, the mm -hmm. parameterization even. The example that you have seen in the keynote is that pretty much without writing a single line of code mm -hmm. as a developer, all you need is a CAT model of an object and you upload that through an interface and then in a cloud-based offering, we will generate, like you said, robot large amount of synthetic data to, to train a model. That model will then be downloaded and it can be executed on-prem. So basically on-prem, we only run inference, mm -hmm. the model that was trained in, in the cloud. And what you can, can see is that you have a highly reliable, highly robust pose estimator, for example, or also thinking of, of, of calibration, which is another key aspect of, of course. And there are obviously a number of industrial applications where robust pose estimation um, is, is going to be key. Mm -hmm. And there will also be, be more coming from in our offering uh, that, that we will announce in the, the next couple of weeks and months in this space to show the utility value for customers even more. But the, the key message here is that we have integrated the opportunity for developers to, to leverage data in a more powerful way to have like a proper, proper data pipelines to think of security, think of privacy, to have this built in into the backbone of, of the system. And then from a developer perspective, like you've seen in the keynote, all you need to do to oversimplify this is to operate a mouse and do five clicks. I'm not sure whether it was five in the keynote, but it was a very small number of clicks in order to leverage this. And we believe that this is one of the things that will, will be attractive if you use flow state that you don't really need to worry about the computer vision, don't have to worry about the data, don't have to worry about the machine learning piece when it comes to deploying perception systems. But how do you deploy this machine learning model then? On-prem, you, you can think of an, um, an industrial PC or think of an edge device. Okay. And you, you typically have a, a real-time component, so there's a, a real-time operating system that is being used. Uh, typically, there's a non-real-time part as well. For perception, inference, so depending on your setup, you can run things on, on a CPU, you can run things on a GPU, you can run things on, on a TPU, depending on what kind of hardware the, the customer has or needs for an application. And that's actually something we, we can literally show today. And uh, the important aspect to also re refer to what we, we shared in the product announcement is 
from a deployment perspective, everything we, we do runs in Kubernetes and invested a lot in really empowering and, and leveraging Kubernetes here because it's a number of advantages from a deployment perspective so that you can basically run your software in, in, a, in a very decentralized decentralized way. It offers a lot of flexibility from, from a user's and from a developer's perspective. And this flow state, is it the, the pipeline for the ML ops then also? It's definitely the front end through okay. which you are able to upload the CAT data okay. to the cloud where then the models are trained and then downloaded again. So via flow state, you can access this the strengths of the machine learned image processing. So a lot can be done with AI in the field of robotics and we will get more robots on the podcast for sure, Peter. So you have to, you have, we have a little bit to switch into, into the robotics market. That's Perfectly okay in as far as they are, have been already a very important part of our industrial AI and will most certainly continue to be. I mean, we continue to hear about the lack of workforce people. We don't have enough people and that's only going to be stronger and stronger. So, and, and, and there's this huge chance for all the economies and that is the case here in the western world let's say in europe but also in the united states i've seen that the job openings are growing and growing and growing everywhere everywhere and i think if we do it in the right way you know we can make sure that we're going to continue to be able to produce also here locally around the world locally and, and i think robots are going to be uh, playing a big role in that Peter, go on with your news, please. Well, there you go again. You know, we go from one to the other as if we would have discussed it before, which, which we haven't. You and I always very quickly say, what is the topics? But here you go. You know, Microsoft, they want to make it easier for enterprises to feed their uh, proprietary data into OpenAI CPT4 or ChatGPT. What I just said, you know, and we've been, we've been talking about it and we just did. You know, it's a functionality which is uh, now available as a public uh, preview via the Azure OpenAI service. It eliminates the need for training, fine-tuning your own generative AI models. So I just said as an example, robots, you know, here it's already there. Here it is for general, whatever it is. So the models are managed by Microsoft in their cloud. Uh, OpenAI doesn't have access to them. You know, of course, TPTR data access, of course, very, 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 very important. Uh, what was the big hiccup? Was it with Samsung, I believe, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. They had been putting their data and then the data was out there. Of course, that should not happen. Um, you know, when we, when we introduce new technology, independent on the fact of, or put it another way, in five or 10 years, you're going to have, you know, uh, young students uh, do their master or their, their bachelor looking back and saying, just on the introduction of the technology by OpenAI, how they did it, you know, just win a couple of months, so to say. So the information that... It's interesting because, because Samsung is now also working on an own large language model. Sure. And the point is, sure, these hiccups occur. Sure, it shouldn't. It's, uh, you're always happy if it isn't you that was the person doing it. But these things happen. And because it happened and because it was a big piece of news and everybody understand that that is not what you should do, for that same reason, you're going to have solutions, you know, to make sure that doesn't happen again. So the, this information is not, according to Microsoft, it will not be used to train any other services. 
nor do customers have access to other customers' models and data. Sure, that seems like a takeoff. And it's, it, it always comes back to the thing that we've been talking about five years, you know, uh, doing things on the cloud or keep him with you, being careful or not. So, and, and if you listeners probably are going to try this out, again, you're probably not going to start with your crown jewels, put them up there, but you will, you can try it with, you know, smaller things to do this. So I, I think this is a, this is a huge, important thing. It's what I was always thinking of. You know, you have this foundation model with all this good information and all this still uh, crap information, which we need to make sure that is going to be out at some point in time. And there's loads of discussions, loads of activities in this world. And if we're going to make sure that we then can give our own information of our own company uh, to the base model, and we then can start asking questions. I, I recall that 10, 20 years ago, we were looking at how can we make sure, and that was only a company of 100 later on, 400 persons, how can we make sure that, you know, Peter knows what Paul is doing, that Paul knows what Petra is doing. And that was a big thing. And now, you know, if we make sure that the information that is available on our drives everywhere, not handed over, wrong word. I think when I read it, it sounded like the federated learning. So give the model, um, don't say it is, but it sounded to me, it sounded like it comes to the data because I have a question and then in combination with the foundation model is capable, more capable of giving you a better correct answer f specifically for your organization. Okay. Two more short news, Peter. Sure, yeah. So Google DeepMind CEO, Demis Hassabis, uh, we have heard that you know they were uh, put together. Uh, they will be working uh, on the system which brings uh, two technologies together. It's called Gemini. Uh, it will combine large language model technology with techniques like reinforcement learning. We talked about a couple of times. Uh, we recall AlphaGo, you know, beating the number one Go player, AlphaZero, that was learning chess or games, playing them, becoming al almost, I say, unbeatable because in the meantime it was alpha fold uh, designing proteins and aiming to give this system new capabilities such as planning or the ability to solve problems now in his means of i would say british understatement according to damis his team has some further new innovations that are going to be as he said pretty interesting now i'm i'm really much looking forward to google having invented co-invented many much of the base large language model technology I only say attention is all you need 2017 has been playing is playing catch up since the introduction of chat gpt right and let's see let's see if they are going to i mean you could almost say from a technology who has put all the work in there we had this discussion it was probably 90 percent or more google um, and from a perspective now there you go again what i said before it's the community. You can compare with hidden champions. If you're in the market and we have all these hidden champions come to us and present, then you know that they are number one globally. If you're not in the market, you've never heard of them. What's happening is now we have uh, 300 million users of ChatGPT. Of those, 
probably 10,000 know that because they are at the deep technology level that a company like Google has put, you know, 90% of technology in there. The other, uh, what did I say, uh, 299 million or whatever people have no clue because they're not interested in what is at the base level. So still very much looking forward to it. I do believe that they will be showing some very interesting things if that's what uh, Damis is announcing. Maybe Francesco Nori can tell us a little bit more because Francesco is a researcher in robotics at DeepMind and we will have an interview with Francesco in the summer. Very good. Looking forward to it. So my final one is more specific industrial. I then to close as well. Uh, sure, we, this is what we are and this is what we report and this is what our podcast and interviews is about, but reporting about what's happening in a more general large language model AI world, I believe, and I hope you agree, dear listeners, is important. So, Mark Zoller, Fabian Maute, Peter Zeiler and Marius Lindau, they are students with Marco Huber. Uh, you and I will uh, see, meet Marco later on in, in the week as well. And they produce a paper available on uh, Archive. Well, uh, you can see it. We'll probably put it in the in the notes, and it's called Automated Machine Learning for Remaining Useful Life Predictions. So they say in the introduction, being able to predict the remaining useful life, as an acronym is called RUL, of an engineering system, that's important. It's an important task in prognostics, health management. So recently, data-driven approaches to RUL predictions are becoming prevalent over model-based approaches since no underlying physical knowledge of the engineering system is required, which is already interesting, right? You know, it's a, it's coming back again to what we discussed today. You know, are we still have pupils or later on students studying, learning physical knowledge of the engineering system? Or, you know, even if you have it only the base knowledge, and that's what we come in the end, then we say, well, maybe you don't need the underlying physical knowledge. So, This then replaces the required expertise of the underlying physics with machine learning expertise. But today also the machine learning expertise is many times not available, right? So what is their solution? AutoML. You know, we've talked about it a couple of times. Greetings to Frank Hutter. There you go. <laughs> we'll see and those of you in October. Oh, I thought it was November. No, it's uh, October. Is it October? In October, AI in the forest, they will get a face-to-face -face introduction by The number one authority, Frank Hutter, right? So Marco and his students, they introduce what they call auto RUL. And that's an AutoML-driven end-to-end approach for automatic RUL predictions. And they show that AutoML provides a, a viable alternative to handcrafted data-driven RUL predictions, making them then, and that's then the final thought, more accessible for domain experts. So you eliminate the machine learning expertise from data-driven model construction. So what what is this? If you are um, a domain expert, maybe you don't have the deep physical knowledge and you don't have the deep machine learning knowledge, then this solution, AutoRUL, uh, is going to give you, you know, a solution which until now you would have, you would need a specialist in, in either speciality. Perfect. So that's a long news part today. So we will close the news part and switch into the main part. Peter, I'm looking forward to spend the next two days with you in the Alps. Now let's go to work and work with our participants and switch into the main part. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Very good. Thanks, Robert. See you later on in the Alps. And you, the listeners, listen or hear you. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
We are celebrating a premiere today and we present the first episode of our partner, Women in AI and Robotics. So I'd like to welcome Sheila Beladinijat. Hello, Sheila. Welcome. Hi, Robert. I'm really excited for this episode. Yeah, me too. Me too. And You have your first guest today, Professor Dr. Gitta Kutniok. Hello, Gitta. Hello, Robert. Great to have you with us here in our first podcast with women in AI and robotics. Before we start, why don't you both briefly introduce yourself to the audience and then I will turn off and you may discuss Gitta's AI topics and I'm listening to you. Would you please start, Sheila? Okay, so I'm Sheila Belladinejad, and I'm the president of Women in AI and Robotics. I have over 20 years of experience in the industry as a consultant in technology and quite uh, excited about getting into the podcasts with women in AI and robotics. And we're proud to present our very first guest today, Gita, who is also a member of our community. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gita. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very much looking forward to that. Gita, please introduce yourself briefly. Yeah, my name is Gita Kutuniok. I'm a Bavarian AI chair for mathematical foundations of artificial intelligence at Ludwig Maximilians Universität Munich. I'm also the LMU director of our Konrad Zuse School of Excellence in Reliable AI. In addition, I'm currently the vice president at large of the uh, Worldwide Society for Industrial and Applied Mathematics. And finally, I'm also the LMU director of one Munich Strategy Forum project on human-centered robotics. Sheila, I hand it over to you. I will listen. It sounds very, very interesting. Thank you. So let's get right to it. Uh, I think, you know, looking looking at your research and your career path, uh, Gita, the, the one of the main topics that comes to the surface is reliable applications of AI and reliability of AI. Um, you have done extensive research on this topic. And I, you know, these days, uh, reliability of AI is a hot topic and it is very important. So I'm eager to learn more about your research in this area. Yeah, thank you very much for the question. I mean, I agree that I think reliability is absolutely crucial today. And so from my viewpoint, it is important to understand AI in its depths, to understand really the mechanisms which make it work and to also then be able to improve it that way. So from my research, I have several research directions, which I think contribute to a deep understanding and then also improvement of uh, AI technology in general. One is what you certainly aim for is uh, you would like to understand the performance of your AI system. So to in particular get error bounds on the performance to know exactly when the AI succeed but also know what is basically the uncertainty which you expect. So, and from our research, we are analyzing the generalization ability, what one says, of deep neural networks in particular. So how much is the neural network able from the training data to generalize then to test data, so unknown data. And there, I mean, in many cases, we can give very precise error bounds so people can understand exactly how good the system performs. This is one aspect of the research um, I'm doing. Another is explainability, because as we all know, also the right to explain is a legal term, which is also now in, uh, let's say, some laws and also the AI Act. And explainability approaches, from my viewpoint, um, one need to be a bit careful because 
if you would like to get reliability using explainability and explainability approaches, what you certainly need is also that the explainability approach is itself reliable. And this is something which is usually overlooked. And so what we do is we develop explainability approaches which are mathematical and theoretically founded so that you also know that they are reliable. We build them, for instance, on techniques from information theory, rate distortion theory, so that our explainability has also a rigorous foundation, a profound foundation, so that you can be sure that the explanations which you get are reliable. And so explainability, just in a nutshell, is you have your AI system, you have an input, you get an output, and you would like to understand which features of the input are most reliable for your output. Let's say in a very easy case, you have an image, let's say, of a cat, and the neural network decides that this is a cat, then you would like to know which pixels from the image are most responsible for the output. And then maybe you would expect that maybe the ears are highlighted. But I mean, maybe more general, you have, let's say you use neural networks for screening job applications, and then maybe you get a negative output and you would like to know which part of the CV are most responsible for this output. That way you can also check, for instance, fairness and whether the neural network learn something reasonable. And maybe as the as one additional point, what we also analyze is, I think, an area which is, from my viewpoint, often overlooked and has to there has to be a much more emphasis on, which is our limitations of AI. Because AI is not a Swiss army knife. It has limitations. And I think it's very important to carefully analyze that as well. And so what we did, for instance, in that direction was we looked at aspects concerning hardware platforms because everybody these days train AI on GPUs, so on digital hardware. And so you break your problem down to sequences of zeros and ones. And this has to have certain restrictions since most real world problems are of a continuous nature. And what we found out is indeed there are reliability problems for many problem settings, um, which could also be a cause for the instability we often witness in AI. So what we but what we also at the same time showed is that you can overcome this by using analog hardware. And there are very exciting directions today which we witness, like neuromorphic computing, for instance, biocomputing, also quantum computing. So there are very exciting analog hardware platforms which are already to a certain extent available and so our research points towards that for certain problem settings, you might need to think about augmenting your digital hardware by analog hardware to get true reliability. And so there's maybe a third direction, which, I mean, I, I think, as said, I mean, limitations is, uh, I think, an aspect which needs to be put more emphasis on and so we saw that there is, in fact, uh, a problem often with hardware. So maybe the f future of reliable AI might point towards that. Uh, one need to think about the hardware platforms where we train our AI on and might need to develop more sophisticated hardware platforms incorporating analog hardware. And then certainly also the algorithms need to be set up appropriately. 
I think this last point that you mentioned, Gita, is quite fascinating and uh, personally new to me. So perhaps we we need a full episode to cover this topic in further depth to better understand it. But I had not heard of this approach before. And it's interesting that research is being done and looking at things not holistically, not just on the digital side, but also on hardware. And as you mentioned, there are multiple aspects to AI itself and its limitations. So trying to find the limitations and going beyond that sounds like a very interesting approach. So maybe I can add one point concerning reliability. As I said, I mean, I think it's absolutely key topic. And so what we did now also in Munich to actually educate uh, students, in particular also in reliable AI, we have a new Konrad Zuse School of Excellence in reliable AI here in Munich between both universities, between LMU Munich and TU Munich. So our teaching schedule for master plus PhD is exactly in that direction. So we cover aspects like safety, security, privacy, and responsibility. And also we have topics on the one hand, theoretical, algorithmic foundations, and then concerning applications concerning medicine and healthcare, robotics interacting systems, and also algorithmic decision-making. So, and we believe and hope that we can that way actually bring international talents in this area here to Germany, educate them, and then also keeping them, and then hopefully also that way support uh, our industry in Germany and also academia at the same time. Great. That sounds like a very fruitful initiative. I believe the launch of this program is in uh, last July. Yeah. So the launch was actually July last year. So we had our already our first call for PhD students. We got numerous applications worldwide. I mean, really top applications. So very hopeful to be successful with our endeavor in building up the school and really then educating the next generation of AI researchers in and for Germany. Great, thank you. Getia, I think one of the major issues with people from the industry, and since we have listeners of this podcast who are from the industry, is applying the techniques, the theoretical techniques and researches to their everyday work and practice. So with the topic of uh, reliability of AI and reliable AI and so on. What recommendations do you have for the audience who are eager to learn more and apply the techniques that you have found helpful and useful to their work? Yes. Yeah, so on the one hand, I think what is important is to always use explainability approaches because what can happen is that well, the training data might not be optimal, so there could be some components in which one does not see at the beginning, but then it could be that the AI just learns those components, and this is not something you, you would like, and so then the AI is actually not able to generalize to unseen data. But with explainability approaches, you can basically test a bit whether the AI system or in particular deep neural networks learned something reasonable. So that would be one recommendation to always use explainability approaches after training to check whether something reasonable was was learned. And then also what one can do is using also explainability approaches, certainly during using the system to, again, I mean, get more insight into the data and carefully check what, what happens basically in this black box 
to make it more like a gray box or more like a white box. Now concerning generalization abilities, so there are already algorithms which give us let's say, uncertainty estimates how likely or how certain the AI is concerning a decision. I think invoking that is always very useful because one would like to also know, and I think one main problem is that if, let's say, the training data is not sufficient, the AI will just reach a decision based on insufficient training data. But what one really would like is to understand how certain It is. And so I think using these type of approaches, so uncertainty quantification, I think gives much more insight how trustworthy then uh, in the end the outcome is. And concerning the computability aspects, um, as said, I mean, there is still in all of those areas, there's still a lot of research going on. I mean, the analog platforms like neuromorphic computing are maybe not at the level where I can immediately use them, but there is a lot of, uh, let's say, research going on. And maybe I should say at this point, we also just actually yesterday founded a company in this direction, Ecologic Computing, which actually has as a goal to develop algorithms, which are then trustworthy and reliable AI, which are built so that they can and augment analog hardware in an optimal way in digital hardware And that way then ensure a computability approach, which is then also from a theoretical viewpoint, absolutely uh, reliable. Thank you. Perhaps we can go through an example or use case of explainability approaches, if I I think our time permits, for going through one example. Sure, I'm happy to do that. I said, I mean, one of our approaches concerning explainability is built on information theory. So basically, the key idea is you would like to analyze which are relevant features. And so one way to do that in, in a nutshell is to take certain areas, for instance, of your data or certain features and augment the others by, for instance, random noise and other structures and then check how the decision changes. One key aspect there is what are actually relevant features or what are features at all in the data. And this is very much application-based. So for instance, in imaging sciences, people take pixels, which might not be sufficient, but you can use also different decompositions of the image, like using, for instance, so-called wafer systems, shielded systems. And then the relevant features, which you get in the end, are based on this decomposition and give you a bit more high-level viewpoint, which clusters of pixels are important in the end for the AI to reach a decision. So this is one, let's say, very general framework, a very general viewpoint using information theory, which you can apply to various different types of data, not only imaging, but audio data and also multimodal types of data. Yeah, thank you. And yesterday, you may already have heard and know the EU AI Act passed at the European Commission. And uh, your research has some aspects of this act. And I'm curious to learn more about that and what your opinion is of this EU AI Act that has just passed. And I think there is some some excitement around it, but also there's some skepticism around it as well. So I, I'm curious to learn more about your thoughts on this topic. Yes, yeah, so on the one hand, I think I, I very much welcome, I mean, this AI Act, since I think it's a way to also ensure a bit of regulations 
on AI technology. And I think this is important because I think we all agree that reliability, trustworthiness is, is important. So in that sense, I think it's a very good step in the right direction. On the other hand, I mean, if one looks very closely, one realizes that, I mean, the first drafts, I mean, come from 2021. And then, well, I mean, I think we all also realized how fast the development is in the area of AI. I mean, since 2021, I mean, major changes happen. We have transformers now. We have foundation models. People are already thinking, thinking about the next stage of foundation models, which are much closer to the human brain allowing something like sequential decision-making. So in that sense, I think it is a step in the right direction. But on the other hand, it was also very slow to reach that decision. And I think if the development continues that way, I mean, it will create a major problem because then, I mean, these laws are in a sense, I mean, very quickly outdated. So and so from my viewpoint, the decisions need to be be much quicker. And so what I also welcome is, I mean, this decision of the G7, which happened in Japan, that there is a worldwide effort in that direction. Because I think if now the EU uh, has an EU Act, which I think is something to see from a positive viewpoint, but it needs to be in correspondence also with the worldwide development. Since what one would not like to happen is that we have extremely strong laws in Europe, but the other countries do not have those and really push forward with the AI development. And so there I see the danger that actually, well, Germany and also Europe as a whole falls back in the development of AI. And this I view as a very dangerous direction and situation right now. Great. Thank you so much for sharing your uh, thoughts with us, uh, Gita. I think uh, we, we covered the areas of your research from the error bounds of generalization of graph neural networks to ex explainability approaches and mathematical foundations and so on, and also the computability aspect of utilizing digital hardware and analog hardware and um, augmenting that to have better explainable algorithms that are transparent and so on. Those, so these three aspects are all, I think, equally important and interesting for us to learn more about. Perhaps, you know, we can uh, in future episodes dig deeper into each one of those and learn more about them from you. Robert, I think we are out of time, right? Yeah. Wow. I'm really impressed by both of you because it was a very, very, very interesting first episode. And I'm thrilled to listen to this episode. Episode. And I have one more question to Gitter because I wrote some questions down during your conversation. I have one more question. What are the next steps in regulation, in transparency, in explainability? What are the next steps in research? So I think, I mean, if you think about also what is already mentioned now in the, um, in the AI Act concerning algorithmic transparency, yeah. right to explain algorithmic accountability, I mean, from my viewpoint and, and taking it, let's say now to, to my research, um, as that, so we can show that for many problems, um, you can actually not ensure this using just pure digital hardware. So I think the next step, I mean, from my viewpoint is to now expand the hardware people use in augmenting it with, with analog hardware to then also be able to fulfill the requirements, the legal requirements, which are there today for AI technology. 
there's always a produce that the European wants to explain something and wants to regulate something and the Americans are making business out of it. Do you see the same research in the Anglo-American uh, universities about explainability or is it a European focus? So I also see the same research. I think people are also uh, doing research in that direction. What I don't see is, say, the drive towards regulations. So on the research side, I mean, I see similar directions, but the legal side is, is, is different and more, I might say, relaxed in that sense than uh, in Germany and, and Europe, or let's say less conscious, however you would like to phrase it. And could it be a business case to have an explainable AI model? Do you think this is a, a unique selling point for, for software in the future? Yeah, so it indeed, I mean, it could be something like, I mean, made in Germany always was a real, I mean, a amazing quality science. So it could be that in the future, if AI comes out of Germany worldwide, it is known that this is then explainable and reliable. So from my viewpoint, I'm, I think that is a great chance. So for, us, for instance, also with Konrad Zuhl School, we think in that direction. So this could be, yeah, I think a, a very strong business model. Perfect. And can you share some more information about your company you, you established two days ago? What is the business, the, the idea, what you provide to the industry? So what we provide are software solutions. We are also now in the process to establish cooperation with hardware industry to also have that component covered. And so I, I do this jointly with uh, my colleague uh, Holger Boche from the TU Munich and Frank Fitzek from the TU Dresden. And uh, as I said, I mean, it's, it's a fabulous approach. We provide the software which then would augment also, which ensures that you can augment digital hardware by analog hardware. And maybe I should also mention that this, from our viewpoint, also solves the energy problem because we also know that, I mean, um, digital hardware uses an enormous amount of energy, but analog hardware does not. So with these software solutions, I mean, you could also tackle that worldwide problem of this huge energy consumption for GPU training. Gitta, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Sheila. Congrats, your first episode. It was very, very interesting. You did it so well. Uh, we are really looking forward for the next episode. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robert. It was a real pleasure for me and a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Kita. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you.